Your testimonies are wonderful. Now, I don't know what your upbringing was like. I was raised in a home where rules were obeyed, period. My dad was a good dad. He was definitely an authoritarian, though. But what he said was law, period. And you didn't have a say in it. And so, especially as a people pleaser and a person who did not enjoy pain in my backside, I kept the rules the best that I could most of the time. But my motivation in the obedience was primarily what? I knew that if I broke the rules, I was in big trouble. Pain would come because of breaking the rules. I obeyed primarily out of fear. And also being an all-around good guy. Right? But mostly fear, right? Primarily it was out of fear. And so with that motivation, it wasn't that I thought my dad's rules were wonderful. Some of them weren't. I disagreed with some of the rules. I obeyed them out of fear. I had to obey them. I didn't want to obey them. But the difference we see in the psalmist here is clear. He sees God's commands as what? Wonderful. There's just not a a mentality of I have to obey. There's a realization that these are wonderful. Your commands are wonderful, and therefore I obey them. You think about the things in your life that you refer to honestly as wonderful. When you think about them or when you talk about them, you, you see them and know them and, and consider them wonderful. David has that impression and those feelings toward God's Word. That's a wonderful thing. It's a really good thing. It's a thing we see consistently through this this chapter of Psalm 119. Wonderful. Now, I I don't want you to think that you should only obey God's Word once you have this giddy feeling that it's all wonderful. I'm not saying that. It was right for me to obey my dad's rules no matter what my motivation was. It was the right thing to do. There are times when you'll feel like your relationship to God and His rules is more like the relationship I explained with my father's rules. And in those seasons, obey. Because He's worthy of your fear and obedience always. But our aim and our desire should be that of the psalmist here. That we see them as wonderful. Your testimonies are wonderful. And that's why I keep them. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore, that's why my soul keeps them. Because they're good, they're wonderful. It goes on, the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Now, the psalmist has prayed for God to help him understand in this chapter. 
And he meditates on the word. And here's why, because he knows that as God's word is unfolded, and you picture a blanket that's folded up, and as you're unfolding it, it, it reveals more and more of what may be inside the blanket or, or the blanket itself. That's the picture we have here of him praying for the unfolding of God's word because he knows that that gives light to his life. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And so as it's unfolded more and more, it imparts understanding to the simple, and that's important. This is is not a message for the scholarly. It's a message for all. It gives understanding. It imparts understanding to the simple for everyone. The simple get understanding from God's Word. And so he goes on, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. It's the same picture we get from Psalm 42, verse 1. Many of you know the verse. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. I long for your commandments. Is this this how we feel and the relationship we have with God's Word? I long. That longing comes from seeing God's Word as wonderful. I want to say here, your desire, my desire, or lack of desire doesn't change reality and never will. Whether or not I long for His commandments doesn't affect the reality that they are wonderful. If if you have an addiction to Coca-Cola or Mountain Dew or some other soda and that addiction makes water taste gross to you, That doesn't change the reality or the fact that water is the best thing for you to quench thirst. And you need water to survive and be healthy. And frankly, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You're deceived. You're tricked. You're blind because of your addiction. In the same way, just because your tastes have delighted in other things than God's Word, and because of that, reading the Bible seems like a bitter medicine rather than a delicious dessert, that doesn't change the reality that you need it and that it is wonderful, that it is good, that it is better than any and every other delight in your life. What we need is to have our tastes awakened to its goodness. I've done um, a handful of sugar detoxes where just go 10 days without any kind of sugar whatsoever. It's a joy. No bread, no happiness, nothing. It's incredibly beneficial. 
Every time I've done it, I do the same thing at the very end. I break the detox with a banana. You can't have fruit either. No happiness whatsoever for 10 days. And I break it with a banana. And it's unbelievable because this banana tastes like banana pudding by the end of these 10 days because your body is so accustomed to over-the-top sweetness that you, we just, we don't realize the goodness of certain things that God created for us to be really sweet and really, really good. And once in those times my body is adjusted and realigned and I taste the truth of a banana, I realize this is really, really sweet and really, really good. And it's just like our needs in our life spiritually. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's that's a heart and a desire and a proclamation that comes out of this kind of love and relationship with God's word, seeing it as wonderful. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments because I know they're wonderful. I've tasted and seen that you are good. Verse 133, or verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. What is God's way with those who love his name? It says here, turning to them and being gracious to him. That is incredibly good news. He does not withhold his grace or himself from those who love him. Ever. That's the wonderful hope of Psalm 73, 25, and 26. And all of these verses that speak of delighting in God because His way, His faithfully consistent way is turning and being gracious to those who love Him. Always. No matter the circumstances, it's why the psalmist can say you're good and you do good even in the midst of speaking and writing about affliction. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. This is a wonderful prayer because it acknowledges temptation. We're going to be tempted. It acknowledges dependence, that we are desperate for him to keep our steps steady. And to let no iniquity get dominion over us. To redeem us from oppression. It acknowledges our weakness. And it acknowledges His ability and His love and grace. It acknowledges our hope in Him and Him alone. It acknowledges the sufficiency of the Word of God. 
Keep steady my steps according to your promise. There's the reality that people can do some really bad and hurtful things to us that can distract us from faithful, steady walk with God. He's acknowledging that. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. We are human. We are, as we often sing or quote from the hymn, Come Thou Fount, we are prone to wander. And the psalmist here prays for deliverance and protection from oppression. But why? Because he doesn't want to be distracted. He realizes the temptation to that end when oppression comes from the hands of others. That we are tempted. We're tempted to have unsteady, unfaithful steps. We're tempted to not keep his precepts. So redeem me, Lord, from man's oppression that I may that I may keep your precepts. He prays for deliverance. And then this, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Make your face shine upon your servant. What does God's face shining on us look like? Aaron was commanded to bless the people in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's presence, as you see these pictures from Aaron, from the psalmist here, God's presence is described like sunshine, like a shining on. And that expression, shining, pictures a smiling upon us. It's a promise and a prayer for God's favor. Psalm chapter 80, verse 3 says this, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Let your face shine on us that we may be saved. And how does the psalmist see that blessing of his face shining upon him fulfilled? Teach me your statutes. It's just amazing. Here's my hope. I hope this for myself. I hope this for every one of us. We've been in a lot of verses of Psalm 119. You may have noticed it's a long chapter. In all of it, over and over and over and over and over, this same theme, this resounding gong again and again and again for the necessity and the sufficiency of the Word of God. I really hope as we're in the midst of these verses and we have two more weeks in this chapter of Psalm 119 that you're not getting tired of hearing this resounding gong of love His Word, trust His Word, depend on His Word. His Word is wonderful. His Word is good. Teach me your statutes. Let your face shine upon me and teach me your statutes. 
Let me know you. Let me know your word. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. You want to know a fruit of seeing God's word as wonderful and seeing the Lord as wonderful and having his word planted deeply into our hearts is? It's this. It's desire for others. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not obey you, do not keep your law. Is that my heart for those who don't know his name? That I could say in truth, my eyes shed streams of tears for them because they don't know you. They don't obey you. They don't walk in your ways. They don't see your word as wonderful. They don't love you. They don't see you as good and that what you do is good. My heart is broken and my eyes are weeping for them. That is fruit of seeing God and his word as wonderful. Do we weep because people don't keep God's law? Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Now, we're going to see through this section of verses 137 through 144, this theme of God's righteousness. The Lord is righteous forever. His rules are right. If you want to know what righteousness is, there is one source and only one source, one true example. He it says, is righteous altogether. If you want to live a righteous life, you go to Him and His Word. We're dependent, completely dependent upon His righteousness alone. The Bible tells us that whatever righteousness we could muster is like filthy rags before Him. He is truly and forever righteous. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Even the scriptures that we struggle with were appointed by him and are therefore righteous and faithful. Now, I want to highlight this today. I want us to to discuss and look at his righteousness. In, in our language, in the English language, we have different words for righteousness and for justice. And in our minds, we categorize them as two different things. That's not the case in the Scriptures. The Bible doesn't have two word categories. Both in the Old and the New Testaments, there, there's only one word group, whether Hebrew or Greek, behind both of those terms. Those terms righteousness and justice and therefore the truths as parts of God's character must be held together. We have to hold them together because the Bible does. He doesn't see them as separate. They're inseparable in belief. They're inseparable in acceptance. And they're inseparable in our practice. Because they are one attribute with God. 
Grudem says this, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Isaiah 45, verse 19, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. You have, the psalmist says, appointed your testimonies, all of them in righteousness, in ways to act according to what is right. And in faithfulness, and we, his followers, are called to do and act in accordance with them. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness that is consistent with who God is and what he does. If my righteousness is not a reflection of God's righteousness, of his justice, then it isn't righteousness. He goes on. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Zeal for what? To see them restored. He's he's consumed to see God's righteousness toward outsiders, unbelievers, his foes. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. Zeal consumed to see God's righteousness toward unbelievers, toward his foes. Your promise is well tried. Your servant loves it. God's word never fails. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's word never, ever fails. It has been tested by those who love it, and it has been tested by those who hate it. And it never fails. And never will. Your promise, your testimony, your word is well tried, and your servant loves it. Your servant trusts it. Your servant depends on it. Verse 141 I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. This is a good and right perspective of the psalmist. It's humility, what Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, as being poor in spirit. It's coming before God, coming before Him and realizing we're nothing. There's nothing in us that's deserving of His favor. There's nothing in us that could, could earn it in any way. I'm nothing, but, He says, I don't forget your precepts. I don't forget your law. I don't forget your word. 
And that is our only hope because if we just come before God and realize we are nothing, but we don't know what his word tells us about those who come before him humble and contrite in spirit, we're going to walk away hopeless. If we forget his law, if we forget his word, but his word tells us there's hope for those who come before him in humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. His righteousness, his righteous rules, his righteous love, they never change. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. And I want to ask you here to consider this verse. Could you say that? In spite of blank, whatever it is for you, I delight in your word. In spite of whatever circumstance, in spite of whatever situation, I delight in your word. That's what the psalmist is doing. Your trouble and anguish have found me out, but, but your commandments are my delight. Can we say that? And if not, what is preventing that? And maybe it's we need to go back to verse 41 and realign with the truth of who we are and who God is. And lastly, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Now we see this again repeated through this section. Righteous forever. When you see these things repeated in Scripture, it means they're important. We need that. We need to say it again and again and again and believe it. Give me understanding. You're righteous forever. We saw earlier how God's righteousness and justice are the same, and that means God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. And verse 142 says his righteousness is righteous forever and his law is true. And so that creates a question concerning sinners like you and me. Because if God always acts according to what is right, then we're in trouble. And so the question then comes, is God unrighteous when He doesn't treat people according to their sin? When He doesn't punish their sin? And that's the glorious beauty of the gospel. That God is righteous, altogether righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, None is righteous, speaking of us humans. No, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. And so for God to treat anyone as if they are righteous should cause us to ask, how? How? And we get the answer verses later, Romans 3, beginning with verse 21 through 26. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in, in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God results in redemption for men, not just judgment. Because he is just. He is the punisher. But he's also the justifier, the one who makes right or righteous those who come to him. How does he do that? Because he punishes sin for everyone. Everyone. If you at some point in your life came to church and prayed a prayer or went forward or whatever and you surrendered your life to Jesus, that doesn't mean that God didn't punish your sins. He did. He punishes sin even for those who believe and are saved, but for them, the punishment for all of their sins went to Christ. That's exactly what Paul is writing in Romans 3. Jesus willingly took our punishment. He became the punishment for us. So God is just in punishing and righteous in that. He always does what is right. He punishes sin, but in grace, Jesus took the punishment. And the punishment was real, and the punishment was effective, and therefore it was satisfactory. That's what it means that he was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. His sacrifice satisfied God's anger for the sins of all of those who would trust in him, in faith. And so let me ask you, have you received this gift of salvation and life in him? Romans 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 10, beginning with verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious truth. I pray that you would do that today. And for those of you who have trusted in him, those who are saved, I want to ask you today, as a recipient of his righteousness, are you living in accordance with that? God's righteousness and justice being one. Do you display it? Does your zeal consume you for the just treatment of others? What does that look like in your home? 
What does that look like in your neighborhood? What does that look like in your city? What does that look like in the country that you call your own? Do you reflect and display righteousness that shows the fair and truthful attributes of the God that you love? Do you love Him? Do you love His Word and see it as righteous and wonderful? Oh, that we would say with the psalmist, your testimonies are wonderful. I long for them. Righteous are you. Right are your rules. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your commandments are my delight. We're going to go into a time where we take the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. And considering the verses just read from Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, consider his righteousness displayed and fulfilled through Christ for you. He became the propitiation for your sin. That means he bore God's wrath and satisfied God's wrath for your sins. His body was broken for you. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As we hold the bread and hold the cup, remember, remember, that is God's righteousness, His justice, His kindness on those who don't deserve it. That's us. How do we reflect that? How do we rejoice in that? How do we embrace that together? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good. Every single thing that you do is good, Lord. And certainly we rejoice in that as we consider the gospel, the good news, Jesus, that you would come, that you would live a perfect life. You are righteous altogether. From eternity past and forever and ever, you are righteous and true, Jesus. And you came and lived on this earth, and you never sinned. And you laid your life down for the sins of those who hated you. God, we praise you and we thank you and we ask you to help us, even as we hold the bread and the cup, to see that your word, your testimonies, the gospel is wonderful. And as we remember your body broken and your blood shed, help us to rejoice with a deep thankfulness for who you are and all that you've done. In Christ's name, amen.